This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Sarah Vaughn discusses her new novel, Anatomy of a Scandal. Then PW editorial director Jim Milliot talks about Michael Wolff's best-selling book, Fire and Fury. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by NPD BookScan. Well, we have a new number one in hardcover fiction, uh, The Woman in the Window by A.J. Finn. And uh, in this, uh, we call it a gripping first novel with an unreliable narrator, a child psychologist who lives out one of the classic films that she loves so well, which is Hitchcock's Rear Window. Mm. So this is a, a modern update on the story. Uh, we say that the language is at times too clever for its own good, but readers will eagerly turn the pages to see how it all turns out. And uh, the highly anticipated debut has already received a number of notable endorsements. Great. Moving down the list at number five, Rubbishow by James Lee Burke. Uh, this is, uh, an, we say, an enthralling yet grim novel of crime, hate, and tragedy, mm. uh, starring Dave Rubbishow, who is a detective, veteran, widower, father, and alcoholic. And he's uh, hanging out at home in New Iberia, Louisiana, but he's not safe from suspicion and self-doubt when the man who killed his wife is murdered. Mm. So everyone naturally thinks that he done it. Uh, and together with his best friend, who's a personal uh, uh, private investigator, Rubbisho seeks truth, no matter how incriminating. And we say the cast is Shakespearean in its variety, and no one here is blameless. The novel's murders and lies, both committed with unsettling smiles, will captivate start to finish. Definitely one for the thriller fans. Number six, Unbound by Stuart Woods, uh, the 44th Stone Barrington novel. Uh, we call it Inventive, which is pretty high praise for a 44th book in, yeah. in a series. Right. And uh, in this one, a Hollywood producer takes center stage while Stone Barrington, the uh, series protagonist, offers some guidance from the sidelines. And uh, we say that uh, newcomers will find this installment an easy entry into Woods's alluring world of wealth, power, and crime. And finally, at number 17, Promise Not to Tell by Jane Ann Krentz, a standalone contemporary romantic thriller. We say that uh, a plethora of subplots unnecessarily complicates a convincing romance uh, between an art gallery owner uh, who was a cult survivor and a private investigator. And uh, the two of them survived a fire set by their evil cult leader, uh, a fire that killed their mothers, and now another cult survivor has died, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, we say that there's a convincing and enjoyable romance, and a subplot involving the PI's runaway teenage nephew adds some welcome dimension. But despite numerous surprises, the story's suspense falters with the addition of multiple villains. Uh, despite these stumbles, readers may find the romance satisfying enough 
to carry the day. And finally, I just want to uh, note a book that's uh, not new to our bestseller list, but has jumped up quite a bit. And that's Why is for Yesterday, which uh, came up on the announcement of the death of author Sue Grafton. Mm, right. um, last week, it was at number 37. This week, it's at number 16. And uh, also her uh, her first book, a, her first alphabet mystery book, A is for Alibi, um, is uh, is on some of the ebooks bestseller lists. Um, a lot of right. people responding to that sad news. And right. uh, her daughter has also said that these books will never be turned into movies or TV shows, and they will there will never be a ghostwriter who writes under Grafton's name. So as far as they're concerned, the alphabet ends at Y. Wow, wow! And that's what's happening in hardcover fiction. All right. Well. Um... Nonfiction, new numbers one, two, and three. Number one, Fire and Fury Inside the Trump White House by Michael Wolf. This is his insider's look at, uh, as we say in a re- review, the extreme dysfunction of the Trump administration and this searing real-life page-turner. We say, while Wolf's use of anonymous deep background sources, which many newspapers have been talking about, may give readers reservations about the accuracy of every detail, this explosive account will undoubtedly remain a topic of conversation for the near future. So uh, we're going to be talking a little bit more with Jim Milliot on this in just a little bit. So I'll leave it at that. At number two, um, we have Judgment Detox. Release the beliefs that hold you back from living a better life by Gabrielle Bernstein. She's a number one New York Times bestselling author. And here, uh, we don't have a review of this, but this is a clear, proactive, step-by-step process to release the beliefs that hold you back from living a better life. Um, so a little bit of self-help there. And then we also have another self-help, your best year ever uh, for the new year, a five-step plan for achieving your most important goals by Michael Hyatt. So this is releasing your goals for 2018. And uh, finally, at number 10, we have The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning, How to Free Yourself from Your Family and a Lifetime of Clutter by Margareta Magnusson. And there actually is a term in the Swedish language about death cleaning. Uh, and and uh, it just means really just like cleaning up everything that you possibly can. So anyway, that's at number 10. So uh, a lot of people want to achieve their goals, get their beliefs in order, uh, and then clean house and see what's going on in the Trump administration. So that's what's going on this week. Well, that's quite a mix. Yes, it is. I I think we may need some of those things in order to help us cope with some of those other things. No, this is true. Good point. Good point. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Sarah Vaughn tells us about exploring privilege and power in the halls of parliament. We'll be right back. Hello, I'm Isabel Allende, and my book is In the Midst of Winter, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Sarah Vaughn on the line. Her new book is Anatomy of a Scandal. Hi, Sarah. So glad you could join us. Lovely to be here. So your book centers around uh, British barrister Kate Woodcraft, and this is about a new case she's been uh, assigned, um, which is a possible career maker for her. So can you tell us about her and and maybe a little bit about the case? Okay, so Kate is um, in her early 40s. Um, She's divorced. She hasn't got kids. 
focused. She's very focused on her career. Um, we, we start off with her. She's written in the first person, so we're immediately sort of quite close to her. And she's got a very strong sense of, of the need to unearth the truth. Um, not just to play the um, adversarial game um, that you know that you have to play in court, and but she's re- she wants to take the next step up, so she wants to become what's called a Queen's Counsel, and she wants to have a, a quite a high-profile case. And the novel starts with her feeling quite disillusioned and jaded in her her office in Chambers, and uh, her clerk knocks on the door and hands her this case, and it's um it's a, it is a really high-profile case. It's a case. It's a very timely case. Um, it's the case of a um, junior government minister. He's in his early 40s. He's called James Whitehouse. And he is accused of um, raping his parliamentary researcher um, with whom he's actually been having an affair um, in the heart of Westminster, actually in a, a lift in, in the House of Commons. We don't know this, of course. I'm introducing huge spoilers here. Um, and so that's that's what we start off with. And that's what the case is going to explore. And a large chunk of the novel is, is a courtroom drama, really. It's what happens in the Old Bailey when she um, prosecu- when Kate prosecutes James Whitehouse. Um, and, and then we see the aftermath of the trial as well. So uh, tell us a little bit about her. What's her background? Kate? Oh, well, I can't tell you all that because then the story might all come out. <laughs> but she's, um, she's, she's had quite a humble background. Um, uh, I'm very wary of introducing spoilers here. Um, and she, she's possibly a little bit chippy. She's, um, she knows that the bar is still quite old school. It's sort of, you know, she feels it's quite sort of dominated by men who've had a sort of public school upbringing. But, but we probably don't know that much about her. Um, her history at the start um, of the novel, uh, and that obviously um, unravels as we as we go through the case. We know she she takes um, sexual offences cases very personally. She feels them quite deeply, and she feels that she's always very much on the side of. Um, she tends to prosecute rather than defend, you know, and she feels very much on the side of. Um, people who've been victims of, of cases like this or whom she thinks have been victims of cases like this. She's been married very, very briefly, but she doesn't like getting anyone anyone coming too close to her. She doesn't want to sort of um, have to share her space, really, and she pushes anyone away. She's got one friend who she's really close to, and um, that's a woman called Ali who has a very different sort of lifestyle from her. She's a teacher and she's a mum with three kids who lives in the suburbs. So she offers a very different kind of life choice from from those that um that Kate's made but she's her sort of rock really for our american listeners can you give us a very brief rundown uh about sort of the context of this the the uk context you've got um the home office you've got the prime minister you've got eton and oxford um give us a a sense if you can of kind of what power and privilege dynamics are in play Brilliant. So, um, so James Whitehouse, my character, is a junior um, minister in the Home Office, um, and and that's you know the the the, the um, department of the government that's in charge of um, security and prisons and police numbers, and you know it's a pretty high profile brief. Um, in the UK, there's the the Treasury, which is money. There's Foreign Affairs, um, and there's the Home Office. They're you know really big um, departments of state, and but. Um, James, crucially, is best friends with the Prime Minister, who's called Tom Southern. And the, they were at Eton together, which is, you know, this big, most prestigious public school that we have over here that's, you know, 
hugely expensive that you know Princess Will and Harry went to, and uh, our old Prime Minister um, uh, David Cameron and our current Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson. So it's you know a, a very sort of elite um, uh, school, and then from there they both went to Oxford. So I I, I don't know what your equivalent of a school would be um, in the U.S., but it, it would be like them going to Harvard. Um, you know, after after they've been to a very prestigious public academy, um, so he's really um, he's got a stockbroker um, father, and he's very much um, part of the establishment, part of the elite, really. And he's always been brought up um, really to feel entitled, to feel as if he the world is his to explore. And he has he, he's briefly had a, a career. He hasn't gone straight into politics. He's kind of gained a bit of hinterland, um, but then he. Um, then he goes into politics and he, he's going to be fine because he's got the, the patronage of um, the Prime Minister really and they're very, very close together and we hear that they've, you know, they've kind of explored things as they were youngsters, you know, I think they got summoned to the headmaster's office, that, you know, that one of them feared that they got a girl from pregnant in the past. They'd had those sort of adolescent, that adolescent bonding which I think is um, it's quite hard for, for some women to sort of understand you know, if you haven't been, if you haven't had that real bromance from a very early age, and certainly James's wife almost feels that Tom and James are closer than than she is. You know that they have that bond, that connection that they've had from you know being at school and sort of effectively living together in those really formative years from 13 to 22. So that's where James is. Um, the old Bailey where things take place is um, it's a crown court in London, but it's the sort of most iconic, I suppose, um, crown court. And it's where really major cases happen when that happens. Um, and uh, Kate is based in Chambers, which is, I think she's based in Middle Temple. And there are different chambers, which are sort of a sort of nest of buildings, really, a sort of... Um, George and I, I think, older buildings um, above the, um, the, the Strand. Well, down from the Strand, down towards the river, the Thames that flows all the way, not really very far, a couple of miles to uh, to Westminster, the House of Parliament itself. So that's the sort of geographical area that I'm talking about. Um, but, both, but certainly James is very much an establishment figure, very much um, an elitist figure, and he's never known anything else. So I was really, really um, interested in exploring why someone who's, who is entitled like that might behave in a certain way um, and really exploring um, the psychology of somebody who's who's always known that kind of power, who's always ruled, if you like. So how did you uh, land on a character like Kate and even James? I mean, um, uh, what was it that interested you about them that wanted you to, to create these characters? Well, I used to be a um, journalist before I was a writer, so I, um, I read English and then I trained at something called the Press Association. And because I had very good shorthand, um, I did a lot of court cases um, because you can't take a tape into court. You have to write it down in shorthand. And so from a very early age in my career, sort of 24, I was aware of the drama of um, that's inherent in court. I don't think it's quite as dramatic as American courts. Um, but still, you know, people dress up, there's procedure, there's a certain type of formality and language that's used. And more importantly, I realized watching trials that, you know, um, the story can twist and turn on, on what somebody says. So I think I've always been quite fascinated by barristers. Um, my dad's a lawyer too, and I think he would have loved me to have done this. So this is the closest I've 
I've got to, to doing it. Um, and then when I, um, after I stopped doing um, lots of murder cases and, and news reporting, I became a political correspondent. And there the chamber became the chamber of um, the House of Commons. And often it's quite dull. But you will get these moments of high drama as well. For instance, um, I was reporting on the, um, the debate we had back in March 2003 about whether we should go to war against Iraq. And, you know, you heard really good advocacy from, from some of the, the really um, established politicians, people like Ken Clark and the late Robin Cook. Um, but also I realizing in the in the commons you'd, you'd watch you know mps getting into trouble so i was there while there were a couple of sex scandals that sort of unraveled um i was with tony blair when um the news broke that um the weapons inspector david kelly dr david kelly had killed himself and i saw the reaction of the prime minister then so i suppose i'd witnessed at first hand barristers and mps you know ministers and they're quite high stakes in both worlds you know in a, in a murder trial you're taking away somebody's liberty. You're, you're you're potentially sending them to prison for several years. And in a chamber, you know, you're not meant to lie as an MP, and you can, you know, you can fall from grace eventually quite easily. Um, you know, if 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 the tide turns against you and it's and you know it is discovered that you've lied. So I suppose they're big personalities. Um, they're quite dramatic personalities, and they're in realms that allow for drama. So I suppose they were just itching to have a novel written about them. So in addition to your personal experience with these real-life courtroom dramas and in the House of Commons, um, what was your research like for this particular book? Well, I should also add that um, there's also a backstory in this book that's at Oxford 24 years beforehand. And I was actually at Oxford um, in, at the time that I write about. And I actually read English, which is what a couple of the characters read. So um, all the Oxford stories, well not all the Oxford stories, not when it gets really bad, but the background of, of the Oxford College and some of the things that go on are things that I witnessed or, you know, heard about or experienced. Um, so that was a very easy bit of research that was done. Actually, when I arrived at Oxford, the very first person I met introduced himself as having told me he'd gone to Eton. And I managed to get that in the book. I never thought I'd manage to use that in a book, but it just made its way. And so that bit of the research was really easy. But um, when I knew that I wanted to write about this, and I, and I dreamed up the plot, which has never happened to me before, and I really hope happens again, um, I went to the Old Bailey. Um, I'd rung the listings office, and I said, have you got any rape cases or sexual offences cases? And I caught um, a couple of days of a case, which was a sort of city slicker who was accused of sexually assaulting um, women he worked with. And I then contacted the Bar Council and was put in touch with um, a junior representative, a junior barrister. And I asked her if she knew of I wanted a woman in her late 30s, early 40s, who um, uh, specialised in prosecuting sexual offences cases. And um, she, she said, oh, I've got somebody in mind and told me that she had a rape case coming up that I could shadow and completely coincidentally it was the same woman who I thought was incredibly um, impressive who I'd, I'd already seen at the Bailey so I then shadowed this um, uh, barrister in this rape trial in a, in a crown court and she let me sit in with you know conversations with the police and she answered lots of queries for me and she took me to the barrister's mess where you know they go for lunchtime and you know to sort of shrug off their wigs and talk about their cases and, you know, prepare their next bit of speech and wait for 
results to come. So she really gave me this sort of um, inside view, really, of what it was like. And then she very kindly read some of the copy um, and told me if, you know, a judge would pull up a barrister for speaking in the wrong way or leading a witness or being too critical. Um, I probably could have used a bit more artistic license to make it slightly more dramatic, but I was very concerned that it was very realistic. And I didn't want any barrister reading it to say, well, that would never have been permitted because I think it's really frustrating if you read something that's not credible. And I didn't, I wanted this to feel very real. And that's one of the best things people have said, actually, that, you know, they can, they can almost imagine they're, they're watching a trial happening. So that was my research for the, for the barrister. Um, as far as Westminster was concerned, I went and interviewed my old political editor and sort of brainstormed him a bit for some ideas. But I also went back to, um, Westminster and just mooched around um, the corridors a little, the ones that the public can go to, and double-checked with some former colleagues that I got some details right. Um, but I could remember the layout, and I, you know, checked the layout so that I knew that it would all make sense with, with my story. But, I mean, that was very vivid to me, that those details were very vivid. It was more being sure that I'd got the legal details right that was my concern. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Sarah Vaughn, author of Anatomy of a Scandal, who's telling us all about uh, the fascinating research uh, she did for this book. And your previous novels um, took place in Cornwall. So what was the the reasoning behind moving to this other location for the new one? Um, did the setting of the Cornish coast become too familiar for you? Did it feel confining? Um, well, I'll tell you a secret, which is that... Um I actually wanted to write this as my second novel, Anatomy of a Scandal is my second novel. But my first novel had been about, um, was written when my children were four and seven and was about motherhood and the impossibility of perfection. Um, but it was based around a baking competition. And my previous publishers thought, not unreasonably, that it was a bit of a leap to, to move from writing about motherhood and baking to um, to writing about consent and abuse of power and politics and privilege and uh all the Me Too stuff that's now coming out. Um, so I was told I had to, I couldn't write Anatomy as my second novel, that I had to write a different one. So I wrote about North Cornwall because um, my mother's family come from there. I'm from the southwest of England as well. Um, and it's the area that feels emotion, most um, emotionally resonant to me. And um, it also coincided with my grandmother dying, and I wanted to write about a, an older figure who was coming to the end of her life but had experienced a trauma during the war because I was really conscious as my grandmother was dying that she had been a young woman once. And, that, you know, you may see a 88-year-old lady, but, you know, she was once an 18-year-old girl. So the farm book emerged out of, out of that. My second novel emerged out of that. Um, and then once I'd finished that contract, the editor who'd commissioned it had actually moved publishers anyway. And I was out of contract and I knew I really wanted to write this novel, this novel that drew on 
uh, my experience as a court reporter, my experience as a political correspondent, and my experience at Oxford, and that felt to me very current and resonant and relevant. Um, so I wrote it really quick, relatively quickly, really, out of contract, and then we went to other publishers. So it was kind of a novel that had been brewing. I came up with the idea in November 2013, um, and I didn't start writing it till um, January 2016. So it had a couple of years sort of cementing. And actually, I'm really glad that I wrote it as my third novel because I think I learned an awful lot about writing during my tricky second novel. You know, I really honed my craft. Um, and also, obviously, the timing of this is so much better. Although I sold it a year before the Weinstein revelations broke, it's obviously more topical now than it would have been if it had been published three years ago. What's that been like for you, having it come out at a time when this is all very much in the news and uh, in people's minds? It's felt quite strange, actually, um, and certainly over here. So after the Weinstein um, uh, revelations, we then, as I'm sure you know, we, we've had these sort of allegations of, of, you know, on a lesser degree, but still about sexual harassment and misconduct among MPs here. And two cabinet ministers have had to resign already. And there were some details of some of the allegations that have come out that are actually almost mirrored or slightly wor or are worse. In my novel, the allegations are worse in my novel, but there's, you know, there are parallels. And um, one author messaged, who'd read it, messaged me and said, you know, this is getting really freaky now. <laughs> but it it has felt very surreal. Obviously, from a from a selfishly from a marketing viewpoint, it's you know, it's been very timely and very useful. Um, but it has felt quite discombobulating. It's felt quite strange. Um, because I don't think of myself as, although I was a news reporter, and I think I've got a good eye for a news story, um, I don't think of myself as the head of the curve, and I probably have been, you know, for once in my life. Um, it's interesting that the thing, the thing that inspired me to think about this was um, a the result of a, or a discussion about a rape trial over here back in November 2013. It was he was a, a footballer who, at the time, um, was seeking um, leave to appeal against his conviction for raping a 19-year-old, and he, he's actually now been retried and and acquitted. But what sparked me thinking about this was I was discussing um, the case with a couple of girlfriends who both got daughters, and. I, I was surprised at how much more feminist I was, I think, in, in my response to the girl involved. And at the time, there, were, there was quite a lot of um, newspaper criticism of the young woman involved. You know, people were quite judgmental. And I thought about how we do make judgments about women, about alleged victims in rape trials. And we are quite, although they're granted anonymity, we do wonder how they might have got themselves in those situations or, you know, why they might have drunk that much, why they might have worn those clothes like that. I think we're still quite very critical as a society of, of, you know, emancipated young women. And so um, so I suppose I had a sense that something was brewing there, you know, if I, if I had this strong reaction when I thought of the plot after that. So with that in mind, and, and I completely understand that second novel, um, you know, getting over that hump, and, and for your third, something completely different you've written, and you were allowed to after having written that second novel. What do you think is uh, next for you? Um, so my um, my fourth novel, which I'm just editing at the moment, um, and I'm meant to be submitting any moment, um, is in a similar vein to Anatomy. It's not a courtroom drama, 
but again, I'm looking at what happens when a woman is suspected of, um, well, a woman this time, when a, when a family is suspected of, of, of a crime and how, how we deal with that and how we make judgments about that. Um, it starts off actually in a, a really busy, overstretched hospital. We've got, you know, it's, it's, it's winter as it is here now and there's a bit of a crisis in a hospital and um, a child is brought in and it's suspected that she's been she's been harmed so that's my sort of starting point with with this novel um i should say actually that although it looks like i've really diverged from my initial two novels i think there's a strain of darkness even there's a flick of uh, of abuse really even in the very first novel and it's quite explicit in the second novel and for the second novel i reread a lot of um du maurier and hardy which which all you know pastoral novels as well du maurier is not pastoral she's sort of suspense but you know setting it in North Cornwall and um, creating that sense of brooding suspense um, through the through the environment there, and um, I think I was trying to draw on the darkness of those sort of novels in my second novel. There was a slight disconnect because it was published with a with a swirly font on the cover, so I think some readers found that surprising. But I I think if if you read my second novel and then you read my third novel, you would see that that I was starting to explore the same theme, which obviously becomes much more explicit in, in Anatomy of a Scandal. So I was inching my way, inching my way there. I just wasn't doing it as confidently as I hope I've done in, in this book. Well, sounds wonderful. And we wish you luck with this book coming out. Thank you so much. Well, I, I couldn't have, um, I couldn't have asked for better timing. Um, you know, I think this is a topic of our times, really, consent and um, abuse of power and privilege and entitlements. And uh, you only have to look at opera um, this week talking about it. Um, so I hope that it gains some traction because of that. And, and I, you know, I've been published, I think I'm being published really well by SNS in the UK and in the States and Australia and wherever. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully it will, it will do okay. We've been talking with Sarah Vaughn, and you can find her book, Anatomy of a Scandal, in stores right now. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about how fire and fury grabbed the nation's attention. Stay tuned. I'm Armistead Maupin, the author of the memoir, Logical Family, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury. Hello, Jim. Hello, Rose. How are you? Doing all right. Thank you. So uh, we have this at number one on our hardcover bestseller list. Uh, it's definitely been in the news, grabbed a lot of attention. Tell us about this book. Um, well, we think it's going to be an uh, even bigger bestseller next week. Because as you know, one of the things that um, caught everybody's attention last week was after The Guardian and then some other publications started to leak excerpts uh, of the book, uh, Holt uh, moved the publication date up from January 9th to January 5th. So in essence, they had two days to sell the book before um, the, this year, this week's bestseller lists were arranged so that, you know, 28, 29,000 copies is uh, the bare minimum and only the beginning, we think. 
All right. So tell us exactly what it is about this book that's got everybody talking. It's certainly not the first uh, book to come out that's critical of the Trump administration. So what's what's the big deal with this one? Well, I think uh, a lot of the people in the Trump White House inadvertently are not helped. Um, and the access to Steve Bannon, I think, played a big part of it. Um, as people might recall, the first news items out of there were was Bannon calling uh, Trump Jr.'s meeting at uh, Trump Tower with the Russians uh, traitorous and some other juicy quotes. So that that generated uh, lots of headlines. And then there was more insider tidbits about um, what's going on there in uh, the New York Magazine excerpts. And then... You know, after that, uh, you know, it was fodder for the cable shows, the TV, the radio call-in shows. Um, And then, of course, uh, the president himself directed his attorney to send a cease and desist order to to Wolf and to Holt, demanding that they stop publication, claiming that the book was libelous. All of which led Holt to... um, move up the pub date <laughs> because they wanted to try to capture um well they knew that with all this uh interest out there there's no way stores would hold to the embargo because as you know most of your listeners probably know the embargo means the book wasn't supposed to be available for sale until january 9th but since uh, some news outlets had got it uh, the week before and there was some inventory in in the different stores, Holt just said, like, I go ahead and sell it. I mean, and again, it was also a way to make sure books were out there uh, in the face of the cease and desist order, which, of course, Holt uh, says that, you know, they're going to ignore and that uh, they think they're well within their First Amendment rights to publish this book. So for that first week, uh, most people were downloading it on their various e-readers. Um, and, and, and it seems like, though, that there's still going to be an interest for the actual hard copy coming out. This <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is, uh, that, is, that is something of an issue. I mean, because Holt is definitely scrambling to try to uh, meet the demand. I mean, again, uh, you know, their whole plan was predicated on getting enough inventory into their, uh, their Amazon and the stores for January 9th. They released it early. As we all know out here, there was a blizzard <laughs> in the East Coast uh, late last week, so that hampered some um, some deliveries. But they also uh, they did underestimate what the, the demand would be. I mean, I think John Sargent, the CEO of McMillan, was quoted in some publication as saying, well, they couldn't have predicted the type of reaction uh, the White House was going to have to it, which, you know, really helped fuel the, fuel the publicity of it all. Yeah, it really did. It really did. I mean, uh, and, and also, I mean, it ended with, with Trump coming out uh, against Bannon, um, got him to lose his job at Breitbart right, as well. Right, I know. So. I mean, yeah, that's, you know, that's a direct... <laughs> result of that book right and exactly. so uh there's lots of and everybody i mean look you look online everybody has you know the top 10 things you can learn from this book and all this other stuff i think he called ivanka uh dumb as a brick or something along those lines or somebody called for that so there's i think there's something for every trump hater in there. <laughs> right right yeah and this is you know as we we you know we we've 
always here at the magazine dealt with embargoed books and uh, a news organization breaking the embargo at one point or another. The Guardian said that they got this from – or they they claimed they got this from an undisclosed bookseller in New England somewhere. Um, and, and this one I, – I, did it seem like this – embargo breaking this this having happened this early and over the the storm that we've been having did did that hurt whole sales i mean do you think that hurt it or or is it just the 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 uh, interest that's generated by it is going to overcome that yeah i think in retrospect it may have hurt it a little by being so like a week out um because they had, like we, we said, they have really been scrambling, trying to, trying to meet all the orders. I mean, we've done a number of stories, you know, independent bookstores saying, you know, they went like ones in the Washington area. There was two stores there that got 80 each and they sold out within 15 minutes. And then they weren't going to get, you know, resupplies for a while. And as you've already mentioned, I mean, it's done very well in ebooks. Macmillan won't, uh, release numbers, but at Barnes & Noble, for instance, uh, they told us that last week uh, the ebook outsold uh, the print edition, and it's still number one on Kindle. It was number one in the uh, Apple iBooks store. So uh, it's obviously doing very well in digital, and there have been plenty of stories about how much pirating has been going on, <laughs> care of WikiLeaks and some other things. I've also heard about um, hold lists 500 copies deep at, at libraries you know, where, where people are, are you know, number 541 in line for, for 20 copies or something like that. So uh, definitely a lot of interest there, too. Right. But there is a, yeah, I, I, we, we've heard, definitely heard that. And, and Holt thinks they're going to have enough copies in the pipeline by Monday to fill the immediate needs of, of most of their, their accounts. So, you know, for their sake, I hope that's true, because as much as it's been talked about, and I think people do want to see for themselves, uh, we know what this, this, the news cycle's like in the, the Trump era. So um, who knows what's going to happen? And there's two new Trump books coming out on January 16th. And I know the print runs have gone up. Um, I know that might not be as sexy as this, but in some ways, people didn't know this book was going to be sexy, sexier than other Trump books that came before it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's do hope for Holt that uh, that this week shows that they do have the inventory for it. So it would be great for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely they're, they're hoping that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's still uh, still I think number was was number one at Amazon last time I looked. And, you know, somewhat incredibly, they say they they might not be able to ship it for another two weeks. So um, hopefully books are on their way to them and all the other outlets out there. Well, thank you very much, Jim. Always good to get your take on these things. And uh, I think we're going to definitely keep an eye on our bestseller list for the next couple of weeks and see what kind of numbers we get uh, reported from Nielsen. Yeah, I think it'll be fun. Yeah, you know, we haven't had a must-read adult book in a while. So uh, maybe this will be that. That'd be nice. Get everybody talking about the same book for a change. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All Well, thank you very much, Jim. Always great to have you on the show. All right. Thanks a lot. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. 
Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another delicious author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 